Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna. I'm James Gill. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, England. This episode is a Writing Life special, a second podcast this month, in addition to your regularly scheduled programme. And this episode sees our colleague Holly Ainley, Head of Programmes and Creative Engagement, talking to internationally best-selling writer Mosin Hamid about his new book, The Last White Man. We were super excited to get this opportunity as Mosin was only in the UK for a few days. Lots of you will know his book of shortlisted novels, The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Exit West, and some may also know his other novels, Moth Smoke and How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, a non-fiction book, Discontent and Its Civilizations. He writes regularly for the New York Times, The Guardian and New York Review of Books. Born and mostly raised in Lahore, Pakistan, he has since lived between Lahore, London and New York. And while we have you, can I just remind you that we have a few remaining places on all of our September term courses. So if you're interested in taking a tutored online creative writing course, then head to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk for more information. Holly had an amazing conversation with Mosin, covering the key themes of his new novel, race, transformation, freedom, loss, as well as his journey into writing fiction, and how a story is only ever half told until it finds a reader. And so, without further delay, we bring you Holly Ainley and Mosin Hamid. Well, I'm here with Mosin Hamid on a very hot day. <laughs> it's hot here in Norwich and um, Mosin's joining us from London. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I know you're in the UK just for a short period and you've a packed schedule, so this is a real treat for us to have this time. Thank you for having me. So, The Last White Man, for anyone who doesn't know or listening in future, just came out last week here in the UK. Now, I've already seen this described variously as an uncanny allegory, an anti-racist parable, and a transformative tale. So for listeners who've yet to come across it, what is this book in your own words? So um, it, it's hard for me to categorize books. I think other people are probably better at, at categorizing uh, my books than I am. But, um, but what it is, is the story of a young man uh, named Anders who wakes up one day uh, and he's dark. Uh, and when he went to bed the night before, he wasn't. And uh, and this woman he's been dating named Una uh, and Una's mother and Anders's father, um, who are collectively navigating a world where it becomes difficult to um, to figure out uh, what somebody's identity is in terms of what race they are because of of everybody in the, in the novel becoming dark as the novel progresses. So um, it's a novel where first one person, then another. And soon just about everybody um, becomes uh, dark. Those who were not dark become dark. And um, yeah, so it's a, it's a slight divergence from what we might call consensus reality. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I mean, it's a, it's a relatively slim novel, but it just holds within it this you know, world of experiences and, and questions and, and themes there that you've just sort of introduced us to. But I want to just ask you a bit more about that that conceit that the book rests on and um, this idea of transformation and change and and why that, I mean, I've, I've seen it already inevitably likened to um, Kafka's Metamorphosis. I just wondered, did you sort of debate that as a jumping off point or was it just the only way for you to tell the story? Well, the story had been bouncing around for a while. So um, in a sense, I had been thinking about uh, the idea that one's, 
racial position could shift suddenly, uh, really after uh, 9-11 when uh, living in the US and, and just recently in the UK, um, I saw sort of almost overnight uh, an increase in the kind of suspicion and uh, um, sense of threat that I seemed to pose to other people, even though I hadn't changed. And, uh, and people were reacting differently to me, not just in airports and immigration, but also, you know, boarding a bus with a backpack and people seeming a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and so that idea had been bouncing around for a long time. And as a novelist, um, I had written a novel already in 2007 called The Rotten Fundamentalist, which explores sort of the mutual suspicion that can arise and that's been encouraged to arise uh, between people who think of themselves as sort of, uh, you know, Western and people who think of themselves as, as Muslim. Um, but I wanted to tackle, I think, this idea of race more uh, explicitly and specifically. And so um, uh, after the uh, Brexit vote in the UK and the election of Trump in the US and uh, in a time when there seemed like a lot of sort of rising um, uh, feeling around the subject of race and, and the sort of uh, resurgence of, of white nationalism, among other things, um, I, I wanted to uh, get into this topic sort of directly with a, with a novel. And, and the way in that I found really was the title and the idea of a man waking up one day dark and, and of this uh, sort of spreading. And as a novelist, you sort of need that to write the book because you, you may have themes and ideas that you're working with and thinking about sometimes for decades, but until you have a form and until you have a, a sort of literary way in, uh, those are just ideas. And then, and then I had this notion and at that point it, it grabbed me, you know, and uh, I thought I have to write this. Well, it's incredibly arresting, um, particularly those opening pages. It would be wonderful if you could share a short reading for everyone listening today. So I'll begin at the very beginning. This is how the novel starts. One morning, Anders, a white man, woke up to find he had turned a deep and undeniable brown. This dawned upon him gradually, and then suddenly, first as a sense as he reached for his phone, that the early light was doing something strange to the color of his forearm. Subsequently, and with a start, as a momentary conviction that there was somebody else in bed with him, male, darker, but this, terrifying though it was, was surely impossible and he was reassured that the other moved as he moved, was in fact not a person, not a separate person, but was just him, Anders, causing a wave of relief. For if the idea that someone else was there was only imagined, then of course the notion that he had changed color was a trick too, an optical illusion or a mental artifact born in the slippery halfway place between dreams and wakefulness, except that by now he had his phone in his hands and he had reversed the camera and he saw that the face looking back at him was not his at all. That's wonderful thank you so we've got this really powerful story this this drama of people becoming dark and um, that is a really complex multi-layered sensitive subject Um, and, and you've just introduced us to Anders there he has a lot to kind of carry and reflect in this story so I think he's a, he's a good place for us to start. So how did you go about shaping him and, and using him to peel back the layers of, of what this experience would mean for someone? So Anders, um, Anders is a young man 
uh, he's in his 20s. He lives in a small town, uh, works in a gym. And uh, he's lost his mother uh, when he was younger. And uh, he, um, his father is unwell. And he has the sense that, in a, that he's been a kind of disappointment to his father. Uh, he had difficulty in school with reading and writing and even tying his shoelaces. He, um, he thinks that his father sort of has always found him to be not quite good enough. And, um, and his father's unwell, uh, profoundly unwell. And in fact, dying as the course of the novel progresses. And Anders is uh, dating a young woman named Una. And, um, and so for me, the idea of this young man um, having this sudden change, I suppose, I was drawn to it in part because um, although Anders' life story and where he is and what he's like are quite different from me, but um, he's not that far off the age I was in 2001 when I suddenly went through as a young man, this idea of my identity changing. And, um, and so uh, I, I like the idea of, of a young man um, experiencing this and also of somebody who already feels a little bit different um, who feels that he already has kind of a sense of loss and um, who's in a place where, um, where uh, many people are, um, if not struggling to get by, um, uh, facing a situation not of great plentifulness. He's uh, in a town where, where many people are unemployed, where there's, um, uh, where there's not sort of a large, well-off population. And, and he's working, in a sense, with his hands. Um, he's working uh, in a gym, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a profession that requires physical labor. Except that it seems, unlike the physical labor of Andrews' father, who was a construction worker and a construction foreman who built things um, for people to live in and work in, uh, Andrews' uh, physical labor in the gym is, is almost for something that's optional. You know, we go to a gym uh, as a leisure activity. And so, and so working in a gym for him, even though like his father involves effort and lifting of weight, et cetera, it doesn't have the same, um, I guess, social standing or social position that his father's work did of being part of a real community. Although Anders does feel like he's in a community in this gym. But, um, but yeah, Anders for me was... Um, was a young man who would be my jumping off point, who, um, uh, you know, who's, who's flawed in many ways, but uh, who I, I guess I wanted to inhabit. Um, I wanted to be this person and to see what it felt like to be them um, as I went through this journey. Yeah. And at first, we're not sure if it's if it's just Anders. And then, as you, you've already said, um, it's a handful of people. And then the news reports are, or the media is reporting that it's happening across the country. And um, there's this moment I really honed in on where Una, as you've said, Anders' partner, phones him and, you know, says, you're not alone. It's not just you. How do you feel about that? And he kind of pauses and he just simply says, not worse. The fact that his skin has changed colour, this is not about safety in numbers. Like this experience is huge and wide ranging for so many different people. And yet you do still keep the focus quite tightly on Anders and, and those very close to him. Do you think that makes the reader work harder, use their imaginations harder? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, Anders' reaction is initially he, he wants to believe it hasn't happened. Yeah. So he's looking for some proof that this is just some, you know, uh, initially in his imagination or then some kind of sort of you know, psychological episode. 
Um, but uh, but it has happened. And then he asks Una to come and and in a way have a look at him. And and he's sort of hoping that she'll say, well, okay, yes, you've changed, but you know you're still definitely Anders. But she doesn't say that at all. She says, you know, you you, you look nothing like yourself. You're you're a different sort of person, a different kind of person. And then he tries to sort of hide himself. He goes out, but you know, wears a hoodie and and has long sleeves and just sort of tries to come and go and not make contact with anybody. Um, but he can't hide himself for long. He has to go back to work, and he feels that he needs to um, he needs to. Uh, uh, be himself and so at work he tries to communicate to people that look I'm still Anders obviously it's a strange thing that's happened to me but I'm still me um, but he discovers that it's impossible to do this that that trying to be himself um, is immediately a kind of self-conscious and awkward thing and mm. people are reacting to his self-consciousness and awkwardness and and then he thinks oh well you know um, I need to act like they're acting and he sort of begins to in a sense act like um, his friends and his his clients act uh, in a way performing a kind of whiteness, but even that is strange because the performance of it is bizarre and um, not natural. And it, you know, if if at the heart of the experience is just being yourself, if that's what um, uh, uh, being white was for him and, and for the people around him, he can't do that anymore. And so he discovers during the course of the early part of the novel that even though his change is only skin deep. It isn't only skin deep, that his identity is determined by how he relates to other people and that has changed. And so, um, and so Anders finds himself um, with this superficial change that winds up changing him deep inside. Now, in terms of your question of, of um, why the tight focus on Anders and uh, why don't we see sort of a, a, a you know, more of, 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 of what's going on around him and other people, other than Anders and Una and her mother and Anders' father, who are the only people we really see closely. I think partly that's to do with, you know, how novels work. I think that, I think that with a novel, there's something quite special that happens in a novel. And that is that unlike in a film or a TV show where you look at something which looks like the world, in a novel, you look at something which looks nothing like the world. It's letters and spaces and punctuation marks on a, on a, on a blank field. And the reader is actually generating the experience of the novel. When the um, reader is reading, those spaces and punctuation marks and letters have become people and they become emotions and images and, and, and feelings. And I think what makes written fiction special is that the reader is creating half of it, you know, maybe more than half. And so I think in my novels, what I try to do is, is to leave space for, for the reader to do that, to allow the reader to really imagine into existence their their novel. Um, I've really just written, I guess, a kind of half novel that's a series of prompts. And then the reader creates a novel in their imagination. And so and so the tight focus on Anders allows the reader to, the reader will so hopefully just naturally incline towards fleshing out the world and fleshing out the people around him and fleshing out what you think is happening. You know, what country is this? Uh, what do you think of Anders? How are other people behaving? And a lot of that is is suggested, sort of sketched in the novel but really left to the reader's imagination. And, and I think that's important because as the reader imagines, the novel becomes something that also has come from the reader. And the reader can later hopefully reflect on, you know, what kind of novel did you make? And how did that feel? And what does it mean to make a novel like that? So I'm looking at my next question thinking perhaps you, you've already answered it, but um, I would love to, to hear your thoughts anyway, because I think all that about the reader and the reader kind of doing 
half the work, but creating half the world, as you said, made me wonder who this book is for or whether you had a, a specific reader in mind, because I mean, agree. I mean, the, the, the whole kind of nub of this novel is that, you know, our, our color isn't just skin deep. It encompasses so much more, you know, whether that's culture or geography and individuality. And I just, I mean, I don't imagine any of that feels really new, well, to many of us, but to you as writing it and perhaps to lots of your non-white readers. So did you, did you have a, a, a white readership in mind? No, I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, not really. Uh, I think that, um, you know, for me, what's interesting about entering into this space, it's such an uncomfortable space, you know, the, uh, the space mm. of race for everyone. Um, I don't think anybody is really comfortable with it, in part because it's such a bizarre construction. You know, we, we know that these races don't actually exist. You know, there isn't actually a white race and a black race. And, a, you know, um, we, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, we have uh, different blood types, but we don't somehow imagine that those correspond to, to different races. Um, you know, we have many, you know, they're left-handed and right-handed people. There are, you know, tall and short people. Um, but none of those things take on the kind of characteristics of, of, of race where we imagine an, an entirely different category of humanity exists behind this physical difference. I think that, I think that race is, is, is a mutually imagined phenomenon. And because we imagine it uh, and have it imagined upon us, it sort of does things, it becomes real. You know, many of us who, who move around will experience this, that, you know, you have one experience of yourself racially in one place and you go somewhere else. And it's fundamentally different. Uh, it can be, you know, two neighborhoods in the same city, or it can be two cities in different countries. Um, but your sense of what it means to be of the race that people are thinking that you are suddenly means very, very different things. And, um, you know, are you part of the group that feels like it's in the majority? Are you suddenly not in that group? Um, are you somebody who's perceived as a threat? Are you somebody who perceives others as a threat? Um, do you think somebody's like you or not like you based on how, you know, you sort of categorize them racially? And so I think that in a way, what the novel is, is it's an invitation to enter into a kind of game of make-believe. You know, when we're kids, we'll sort of sit together and we'll say, you know, let's play house or let's play pirate. And then we say, okay, you know, so this is the living room or this is the master of the pirate ship. And, and then before we know it, we're inhabiting this imaginary world, oftentimes for children where we are suddenly adults and much more powerful and much more free to do whatever we want. And we explore in our imaginations with a friend or two, this other way of being. I think the novels are, are quite like that. And, and I intend this, this novel in particular to be very much like that. It's sort of an invitation to play make-believe in this domain of race. And Anders' journey from thinking of himself as white to being somebody that others don't think of as white and eventually to himself questioning, you know, what exactly he is, isn't just a journey, you know, for somebody who thinks of themselves as white, a reader who thinks of themselves as white, experiencing what it would be like for this to happen to them. It's also a journey for anybody else, you know, somebody who just wants to inhabit this experience, somebody who, you know, for myself, for example, to, to what is it like to make this thing? But for readers, whether they're in Pakistan or in America, whether they think of themselves as white or black or brown or whatever, I think it's just it's just a, a chance in a sense, in the same way that, you know, pretending that we're pirates isn't a game, you know, only for sort of merchant seafarers. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of for anyone, right? It's the same like this. I think it's entering a world where race becomes fluid 
and where our sorting mechanism according to race breaks down is, is an experience really open to anybody. So, so no, I didn't intend it as for a particular kind of reader. I sort of intended it as something open to different readers reading different things into. Thank you. That's a, I feel like lots of ans- um, other questions could spin out of that answer. But it's making me think in particular of um, another character in the book who's perhaps resistant to that fluidity that you're talking about. And that's um, the character of Una's mother. And talk about this being quite a, a sensitive difficult issue it, it really is for her I mean she she's essentially a conspiracy theorist I don't know if that's a bit extreme but you know she, she's very comforted when people start to take arms and riots break out you know she, she's afraid of being I think she says lowered or converted by the dark people I mean she's a racist to be to be blunt. Um, and yet you paint her with as much sensitivity, I think, as you do Anders or Una. I just wondered, is that kind of deliberately trying to use fiction to, to get into all perspectives? So are you trying to show all sides of this kind of messy world we're in? You know, not all sides, but I guess, I guess at least four different characters um, experience <laughs> of it. And, and, and they are different, as you say, you know, Una's mother, um, uh, uh, you know, she believes, well, maybe I should say that, you know, I thought of Una's mother as a character who was really um, grappling with loss. So, you know, when she's yeah. a younger woman, she's lost her husband. And then just before the novel begins, she loses her son, who is Una's uh, brother. And Una has returned from the big city to this small town to, in a sense, comfort and care for her mother as her mother grapples with, you know, this loss. And Una's mother has gone from being a person who thinks that, you know, the world is basically fair and, and good things happen to good people uh, to somebody who doesn't believe that at all, who believes that things are taken from you, regardless of whether you're a good person or not, and who feels that, that things are constantly being taken from her and who wants to connect to something bigger than her. And, it, you know, it can't be, in a sense, her family because her family has been revealed as such a fragile thing. She's lost her husband and her son. What can she mm-hmm. connect to? And so she connects to the idea of belonging to this group to this group of people that she imagines as sort of the white people of her community. And she thinks that those are her people and that they're under threat and that they face a real danger. And so what the novel, I guess, uh, does is it takes very seriously Una's mother's sense of loss. You know, uh, I think it's possible to have enormous compassion for a feeling of loss, even if we don't necessarily sympathize with the thing that's being lost itself. So so it may be that uh, Una's mother's sense of loss is attaching itself onto a kind of white nationalist view uh, or white tribal identity, uh, which one you know, might find abhorrent. But at the same time, the idea that she is a woman experiencing a profound sense of loss and is, is, is moved very deeply by this sense of loss, for me, is, is um, at the heart of sort of recognizing her as a person. And, and having compassion for that feeling of loss is, is, I guess, what the novel tries to do. I think it's also important because it seems to me that politically at this moment, so many people are experiencing a sense of loss, that the world is changing so fast and technology makes the pace of change accelerate you know, more and more quickly. And we're all feeling, uh, many of us are feeling somewhat unmoored by the pace of change, uh, particularly older people, but really just about everyone. And as we get unmoored and as we're, in a sense, losing our past more and more quickly, all of us, there becomes a tendency to 
uh, sort of gravitate towards nostalgic uh, political ideas, you know, to mm -hmm. Britain before the migrants came here or America when it was had a greater white majority or the classical age of Islam or, you know, Russia before the fall of the Soviet Union or whatever your thing is. There are these nostalgic uh, appeals that are, that are very dominant. And I think we, we can't really reckon with these appeals or try to, in a sense, reduce the attraction of these appeals unless we reckon with the sense of loss that gives rise to them. And so the novel tries, you know, as, as much as, as I can, the novel tries to reckon with Una's mother's sense of loss and to use that as a way into, into her character and to have a great deal of empathy for the loss, even while, of course, you know, not trying to condone what she believes. Uh, it's left to the reader, in a sense, to judge Una's mother. What the novel tries to do is to render her, you know, as faithfully as one can, and from the inside, in a way that's, that's sort of uh, sympathetic to how she might render herself. And, uh, and for me, I think that's a big part of writing all of these characters is, is if they were to be the hero of their stories, what kind of story would that be? And, um, and so Una's mother, for me, you know, it, it really is uh, the story of somebody grappling against losing something. And that's something I think that is a fundamental human experience and one that one can feel an emotional connection to, again, without necessarily, you know, condoning what her beliefs are. I think that's a really beautiful answer. <laughs> and you do achieve that in the in the novel. I mean, yeah, when, when I said how she comes across, it's not that I disliked her as a character. You know, one more thing as you said that, one thing came to me. You know, I, I think also um, uh, it's possible that, uh, you know, that a degree of compassion can coax things a little bit out of the shadows. You know, that, that if you can render a character with compassion and sort of muster a feeling of compassion for that character, um, it's possible that, that one can be a little bit more honest about one is, what one is feeling. Mm -hmm. In other words, if we can see Una's mother and see her, you know, as, as she might see herself to a certain extent, and feel a degree of compassion for her predicament, I think that that is a space that's very fertile for us to sort of explore how we think about things, you know, to encourage, uh, in a sense, the reader to reflect uh, both on, you know, what of Una's mother might resonate with them uh, and what it means for that to resonate with them, and also to consider how they judge this person. And so I think, uh, in a sense, a rendering that is compassionate allows maybe a bit more of a radical exposure on the part of the reader. It, it allows the reader to, to see themselves, hopefully, in a sort of radically more free way than they might otherwise if, if it was clear that Una's mother was being painted uh, for the reader in, in, in clearly harsh terms. Yeah, you're right. The novel is a, is a safe space through which yeah. we can kind of potentially think things and, and experience emotions that we, we might not um, want to or, or feel that we normally do in, um, yeah, in everyday life. Actually, I'm going to jump to a question now, just continuing this idea of fiction being a vehicle to enabling new ways of seeing and kind of bringing in different perspectives that, yes, we might feel uncomfortable. I just put it to you that there's a risk, isn't there? Because it can be really incendiary for some people if they feel that a book or a, a, a subject cuts really close to their own experience or their own life. And Naturally, I'm thinking of events over the last few days in New York where we saw Salman Rushdie attacked on stage. And that's, we can only assume, linked back to a book that he wrote a long time ago, which has 
been difficult for a lot of people. And I just wonder whether that kind of volatility to fiction is ever something that you've had to consider or whether it concerns you or maybe you just don't have an awareness of it at all. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, I do have an awareness of it in, in the sense that um, I think when you've lived between different places I have and I've lived mm-hmm. um, uh, almost two decades in the US and about a decade in the UK and a little over two decades in Pakistan, um, so I've had three homes uh, for in, in my life. Uh, and when you move across places like that, uh, you quickly, it's a bit like transferring schools in, in primary school frequently. Um, you, uh, by your third school, you pick up on things, uh, or fourth school, you pick up on things quite quickly as to, you know, what are the dynamics here? And am I standing out? And, um, you know, are these other kids going to judge me or dislike me or sort of cut me out from the herd. Um, as children, we pick up on these things very quickly. Like, is my accent different? Um, mm. Do I get the basic lingo of what's happening here? Um, is this the kind of school where you say this and not that? And um, and I think as a writer, in a sense, it's it's a bit like being like that. You're, you're um, you know, you as an adult continue to be somebody who transfers between primary schools with every book you you write. And you never quite know, you know, how are people going to react to this book? And so, and so you develop, um, I suppose every writer develops their own approach to doing that. It, it, in my case, um, it comes down to, uh, in a sense, trying to, you know, bring um, uh, as much respect as I can to these very, you know, um, touchy topics that, that, that one deals with. And I don't think that's the only uh, response one can take. I think that there is certainly a role for, for, for mockery and for satire and for all sorts of other, uh, uh, you know, uh, things. Um, but, uh, but for me, um, you know, these domains, whether it be sort of racial domains or religious domains, um, or for example, in The Rotten Fundamentalist, the character Chingay is the main character. He, he finds himself smiling uh, when he watches what's happening on, on, on television at 9-11 and he immediately re- realizes it's sort of a despicable thing for him to do, but he, he, he nonetheless notes that he's doing it. And, um, and, you know, again, even in that moment, there was this, uh, and this was a time when, you know, there was a great deal of sensitivity about what could be written and couldn't be written about, about the 9-11 attacks. And, yeah. And it certainly wasn't my intention to, you know, mock anybody's pain or to suggest that these, these that there wasn't something horrific which happened. Um, but it was a, hopefully a way of rendering it um, that was both true to Chingay's reaction and also sort of respectful to the magnitude of the event. And that's been my way in. Um, so, uh, so in this book as well, I think the the notion is that you know this is very fraught terrain, but um, but I'm I'm going to try to enter it um in uh by giving these characters you know as much dignity as i can i can manage and um which doesn't mean that you're you know immune from uh, people reacting negatively you know uh, of course they can you can walk into a new classroom and speak respectfully to everybody and still get punched in the face i mean that happens to kids all the time <laughs> if you're unlucky <laughs> if you're unlucky but um uh but uh i, I think that you know words have power and yeah. it is it is um, it is an illusion to imagine that we can use them um, and not face some degree of of consequences. You know, there there is a degree of consequences, and one hopes that those consequences are are mild or or restricted to you know uh, positive uh, uh, comments at at readings in bookshops, but uh, but they aren't always. And um, you know, and 
and, and writers um, and artists have always been um, a little bit of, you know, sort of the canaries in the coal mine of our public conversations that, that when things get fraught, um, people like that often get hurt. Um, so I suppose my approach has been um, not to, I guess, shy away from sensitive subjects, um, but to think of, you know, how do I manage my way in um, that disarm some of the visceral um, anger uh, of the response. Um, but, but, but not entirely. I mean, you know, there, there will be some people who will be viscerally anger, angry regardless. Uh, uh, I think, I think, I think that uh, it's not my objective to instigate that anger. It's not my object, objective to court, um, uh, um, uh, uh, I guess, in any kind of controversy around, around the book. But um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very complicated thing. It's sort of like, how do you broach a topic in a family dinner? Yeah. You are incredibly uncomfortable with. Uh, uh, and you just, I suppose the, the short answer is you just do the best you can. Absolutely. And everyone has a right to, to broach that topic um, and, and to tell that, that story in whatever way they see best. And I, but You said they have a right and, and they do have a right. But the thing about it is, is that, um, is that rights in and of themselves don't necessarily protect us from consequences. <laughs> so, um, so I think that writers do have a right. Um, but, uh, but none of us should imagine that we live in a world where there won't be, uh, responses. And so, and so as a writer, each of us, I think has to balance, um, what is the level of discomfort I'm capable, I'm you know, willing for people to have, what is the level of risk I want to take upon myself? Um, and how will I build my fiction in a world where there are consequences like this to somehow still get through, um, and allow me to live my life and, and do what I need to do as a writer. And, that's a very complicated answer and it differs for every writer. But I think uh, all of us uh, who grapple with these sorts of themes uh, think about it. Yeah, and I think we, we think about that here as well at National Centre for Writing. I don't know if you know, but we're a UNESCO city of literature here in Norwich, but we're also part of ICORN, which stands for International Cities of Refuge Network, where as a community we support writers who are facing any kind of persecution or you know seeking asylum, whether that's because of what they've written or... Or not. I mean, I think, you know, one thing is, and this also in a sense touches on migration, is that one of the responses that we have to these things is to move. Um, and one of the dangers that we face at the moment is as we, as we sort of build a world that's more hostile to migration, um, we build a world that, that, uh, that denies, you know, many people um, the traditional human um, uh, activity when you're threatened, which is, you know, if you're threatened sufficiently, you flee. Um, and that's something that our species has always done. Uh, and, and it's important to allow it to continue. I mean, not that people should be threatened, but, um, uh, but that people should be allowed to, to move when they face real danger, I think is, is very important. Um, and that feels like I could spend another podcast asking you about your, your previous novel, Exit West, which, of course, kind of really deals with um, that movement. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about while we're talking about the power of stories is I was really intrigued to read that you were, I don't know if you still are, but a chief storytelling officer at um, Major London Brand Consultant. Now, stories are our business here at the National Centre for Writing. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about storytelling in the, perhaps in the less obvious sector, in a more commercial sector. So, you know, I, I, um, I went to law school in the States and I wound up with a lot of debt as one uh, did in those days. It still does. It, I think people do even more now. But um, 
And I realized quickly into law school that I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so then uh, this was a consulting firm that was recruiting on campus and I got a job in consulting and I worked in New York for a bit and then I transferred to the London office and then I, I was working sort of nine months a year and then I did sort of three months in one year and then I did no months. And then I was working on my second novel. I was always trying to do my novels on the side. And eventually this, this firm in London um, uh, was willing to take me on three days a week and then eventually two days a week and one day a week and then no days a week. Um, but uh, uh, I, I think when I started consulting, I had the goal of, of maintaining my starting salary um, while working less and less and having more and more time to write. Whereas a lot of people's goal was to sort of, you know, keep making, I guess, more. Um, and, and so I had, I had a sort of the reverse career of the average person where, where it was um, uh, less and less time spent at my job. But, um, and more and more time writing until, you know, now for, for quite a long time now, it's been almost entirely just, just writing fiction. Well, I'm sure lots of our listeners will be heartened for the, to hear about that journey. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's a funny thing because um, um, I enjoyed consulting. And, uh, you know, part of what I enjoyed about consulting is, is in writing, you sit all by yourself in a room for hours. Uh, in consulting or in any kind of business or, you know, uh, even not-for-profit, any, any um or most professions, I should say, you work with other people to make something. So whether you're in a factory or whether you're in a library or whether you're in a consulting firm, you're solving problems with other people, which as a novelist is a hugely desirable thing because um, it gets you know incredibly lonely sitting there all by yourself and sort of in a solitary confinement imagining stuff. Um, now, uh, so I was always attracted to the idea of doing other things and, and uh, and, and even now, you know, I continue to sort of um, uh, advise friends on some on work that they're doing or, uh, you know, help out with, with like the Lahore Biennale or the Lahore Literary Festival or um, uh, occasionally consult for friends of mine who are starting a business or starting a cultural venture um, and, and keep my hand in, I guess, that kind of problem solving with other people. Um, but uh, through, I, through stories. Well, yeah. So then... So then the question was, how does one do that? And I entered into the profession in a sort of a traditional, um, uh, you know, management consulting way, sort of the intense, uh, full-blown sort of strategy consulting experience. But very quickly, I, I began to move away from that. Um, and I sort of began to hone more and more on, on, on storytelling and, and how it relates to consulting and business. And, and particularly, I started to think about... Um, you know, when you're advising somebody, a client or the head of a business or the head of a nonprofit or whatever it is um, on the strategy of what, of the, what their business or what their entity um, uh, is, what it, what, it, what it should be, it, it became clear to me that, you know, so much of what the leader of any organization does is, is prototype some kind of future in their mind and have a kind of gut feeling about what they think is going to happen. And so partly when you tell a story of what something is going to be in the future. You are creating uh, uh, something to have a gut feeling to in the same way that if you build a financial model of something, you're creating um, something to react to. And the other part of it is you then say, okay, well, you know, what's the story you'd like to tell your customers or the people you serve or you know, the city if you're, if you're a nonprofit arts institution? Um, what's the story you want to tell about yourself? And then you say, okay, well, this is this is this would be the story we'd ideally tell about ourselves. And then you say, well, um, it will only really work uh, in a powerful way if that story is true. So, what would you need to do 
to be able to tell that story? Um, how would you have to change to become, to make that story true? Uh, in other words, this is what you want to be able to say to your clients or customers or, or to the city or whatever it is. Um, but at the moment, if you were to say this, it wouldn't be entirely true. Um, there would be gaps. You know, you aspire to this, but you don't actually do all of this. And from that kind of naturally flows what you might call your strategy. Why don't you become um, the entity able to say this truthfully? And, and then that becomes a kind of consulting, right? Where you're saying, okay, uh, we figure out by talking to you know, people um, what, uh, uh, what they'd like to be able to say. We figure out you know, the gaps between that and what they can currently honestly say. And then you say, okay, here's how, we, here's how you think about uh, bridging those gaps. And so that became, I guess, a, a storytelling-based way of thinking about consulting, which is different from the idea of just making stuff up and saying, okay, here's, here's, here's a completely false narrative <laughs> <laughs> about your product, you know, cigarettes are great for your lungs. I mean, it, it's, it's not that. I think it, it was. It was instead. Um, it was. It was the idea of of truth is quite close to it, where you say, you know, um, that narrative and its gap between the truth actually is very revealing, um, oh, and it gives you it gives you a, a way of thinking about where to go. And it's a great job to have on your CV, Chief Storytelling Officer. <laughs> I love it. And Chief Storyteller. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was, it was, it was uh, um, uh, a friend of mine wound up running the, the, the consulting firm after me. I, I ran the London office and then I sort of went off and did my writing and uh, a friend of mine wound up running it and then becoming CEO of the company. And, and we were just talking about how I might continue to collaborate from time to time and, and came up with this, with this title. And it was, you know, um, it seemed it seemed fun enough, so it's great. yeah, it's great. tried it for a while. Um, I'm conscious of the time. There's so many things I wanted to ask you, but I think one really important one, um, in and in, in all for all sorts of reasons, really, is that um, came, this came out of a conversation for me with a colleague, um, Caitlin, on on our team here at the National Centre for Writing, who um, was at school more recently than I was, <laughs> and actually studied um, your second novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, um, as a set text during her AS levels, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. You know, I'm, I'm sure you know that you're being studied on the curriculum, but just wanted to ask you, A, what that experience feels like, knowing that your your work is being studied by students. But also, um, I was interested that the, the sort of banner under which she studied your book was the immigrant experience. And I just think that must be quite interesting being part of a particular canon now of migrant or immigrant literature. So two pronged question. <laughs> well, I think, you know, as far as, as far as being studied, it, it feels, it feels really good because I think, you know, mm -hmm. um, students bring so much, I guess, curiosity and rigor and, and openness to reading. Um, I remember when I was, you know, a student and I would really sort of get into books and really try to figure out what was going on mm -hmm. and writing in the margins and thinking about it and discussing it with my friends until the, you know, in a sense, students are, are kind of the dream reader, right? The people who will actually really get into it and figure out what's going on and take it seriously. So, so it's wonderful in that sense to be taught. And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, people teach books in, in, in different places. So I was once at the Lahore Literary Festival. And this young woman who was a professor from Peshawar had come down and she had been teaching um, also the Latin fundamentalist to her class in Peshawar uh, in Pakistan. And she was telling me about some of their reactions. And, and, um, and, I, and I quite like that idea of, of people in different parts of the world, you know, picking up a book 
um, and finding their way in and seeing what they find. Uh, uh, and um, and in a sense, you talked about the migrant or immigrant experience. It, it, it almost it's almost from two different ways in. You know, in in Peshawar, the book is about the emigrant experience. You know, what happens when you go? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Britain, it's taught as part of the immigrant experience. What happens when you come? But I think for me, a lot of my, I guess, my work and my thinking is 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 rooted in the idea that that the migrant experience is a human universal. That um, we're all descended from migrants. Our children were all are all destined to be migrants or grandchildren or great grandchildren. They'll they'll move around. And beyond that, the experience of living a life is a migration. That you know, I've never been fifty one before, and so mm-hmm. I'm I'm brand new in the land of fifty one year olds. And uh, and to be honest, I never really expected to be here. I sort of thought I'd be, you know, twenty for life. And it's strange in some ways. And I think I think for all of us, the experience of getting older and, and of going through life and of being a child and being a young adult, and et cetera, is is one of constantly arriving in these new in these new lands. And so I'm very happy with the idea of being in migrant literature because I sort of think that migrant literature is all literature. That the human experience is an experience of, of migration and. And when we see people moving geographies, it's just a reminder of what we all do, you know, through time, regardless in our lives. Yeah. Well, thank you. And um, I know that Caitlin had a really positive experience studying the book and um, was really inspired. And yeah, she spoke to me about it this morning. So I know she'll be pleased that we touched on it. Um, I'm conscious that our time is up. Thank you so much for your time. No, you're really busy and um, going to go and do lots more events and podcasts, probably. No, no, I'm, all, I'm almost done. One or two more days and then I head back. But but thank you for your time. and uh, Thank you so uh, much, Moses and Hamid. And, and, and good luck with the with the rest of the promotion for The Last White Man. And we'll certainly be urging everyone, all our podcast listeners, to go out and read it. And thank you. Thank you for your thoughts on such big subjects. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. A huge thank you to Mosin and Holly for that fantastic conversation. Don't forget that you can pick up The Last White Man at all good bookshops. Please support your local independent. If you want to find out more about our creative writing courses, workshops and mentoring, you can do so on our website. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website today by hitting the support us button in the top nav. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Writer Centre. And you'll find us on Facebook by searching National Centre for Writing. Don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop down box on the homepage. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.